0: Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. Thank you for tuning in. This show was first aired on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streamed online, WPVMFM.org. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song, and I once again would like to thank you for tuning in. Today's show is divided into two parts. The first part is my interview with choreographer Mika Brzezinski, And after that, I spend the last part of the show, last 30 minutes, offering up some poetry and music that I recorded with my creative collaborator, Walter Parks, a few years ago. We did it in the New York City area. So I've combined these two experiences for you to date. And before we get to my conversation with Mika, if you would ever like to reach out to me, my website is jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. And if you'd ever like to join me for a writing Saturday morning group session, I host one on Zoom every Saturday with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston imaginativestorm.com if you would like to together with us. It's always open. It's always free. No problem. Come if you feel like it. imaginativestorm.com. That's 10 o'clock mountain time, 10 a.m. mountain time, and noon eastern time. So let's move on into the show. I've learned about Mika when a friend of his emailed me after she had listened to another one of the twice five miles radio podcast with paul pascarella Uh, carolyn loved paul pascarella's comments and she thought mika might be a a perfect person to interview turns out she was right so let's move into the conversation with mika i welcome him to the show and he responds
1: thank you very much for having me i'm very very excited and looking forward to the chat
0: And I really appreciate you reaching out to me, and I'm so glad for your enthusiasm. And so let's just build out from the conversation Paul Pascarella and I had. Uh, Mika, you enjoyed listening to Paul. You were drawn into it, and I can tell by just a little bit of time that we spent talking prior to starting this conversation that you have a lot to say and you've done a lot of things in your life, photography, acting, dancing. I see a cello behind you. Maybe you know how to play that or maybe it's there for somebody else to play. Who knows? What was it about Paul that drew you in and inspired you to reach out? And you're based in Europe and here I am in Taos, New Mexico. So we're far apart geographically, but I suspect we may find we're close together in other ways.
1: I think so. I love the way you and Paul interacted in ideas he has in his life, how he leads his life, how he works. Um, There are are, uh, two ribs, I would say, that I'm sharing with him. One rib is the love for motorbikes, although mine is probably not quite as daring as his. Other rib is the qigong and the practice of the Chinese form of movement. His work, How Paul Sees the Work, he uses his inspiration that comes at the moment. When you asked him, how do you start? What do you think about? It? He clearly said he has no idea. That is stepping into what I call the creative moment, an emptiness, an openness, an empty, open space, and the openness to listen to a voice that... You wouldn't A expect and B would trust. That is something that I would share with Paul. And that is what made me want to get in touch with you because you really were in tune with him. And so was I when I was listening. The motorbike goes back. I used to ride the motorbike for years. I had a BMW and fast and it was strong, and there was no missing about. I was a dancer. And my artistic director at the time really didn't like me ride the motorbike and tried to discourage me all the time. However, I carried on. And after I had left the London Contemporary Dance Theatre in London, I started my own dance company. And Carolyn, who you just spoke about, auditioned for my company and we danced together. And for two years, and after that, she led her life and I led my life. And we've just met recently again, after having intermittently met in between. Here we are. She made the link for us to speak and for me to tell you my story. Dance was my life and still is my life. Dance was the life of my mother and music was the life of my father. My father was a professor for music in Berlin. My mother was a dancer in the old days before the war and then stopped after the war because she had uh, me as a child. My sisters and my life back at home was not about talking about music, talking about dance. We were in it. We were right in it. And it was around us. We didn't just turn the radio on in order to listen to a piece of music. We sat down and listened, and it was with us. The piano was always going in the background. My father was playing, and my mother, with her I Ching. I Ching is Book of Changes, Chinese wisdom, picking up intuitive moments in your psyche, your inner thoughts. My mother, as long as I can remember, did Tai Chi, and I became a dancer. My home was my university. I was well educated, not only in music and dance, but uh, we had poetry readings, we had book readings from people like Wintergrass in our home. I could never see them because they smoked so much. So it was always a cloud of smoke between myself and the readers. Everybody smoked like crazy in those days. Anyway, I left home when I was 18 and trained as a dancer and eventually made my way to London to continue training contemporary dance. The rest is sort of history. I started as a dancer in London Contemporary Dance Theatre. I became a choreographer. I became associate choreographer, director of my dance company, and various areas of other work, such as my 15 minutes of fame, actor in a starring role, The Company of Wolves by Angela Carter, Neil Jordan, director of the film. That opened up a huge role in my life, the projects became bigger and bigger. The difference between making pieces for your own dance company where you are entirely, entirely the master of your work and the maker of your work. When you work for large projects, you obviously have a huge team that works around you. The fun of working with teams is to create an atmosphere akin to my thinking akin to my temperament, akin to stepping into a studio and then work with the dancers and let happen what would happen because only the right thing can happen. The depth of the piece and the depth of it would be part of you. You let it come out without pushing it, letting it come out in collaboration with your creative opposite, a dancer, an actor. And to invite them into your room, your own inner openness of how you would like to develop this piece. Working with a dancer or an actor who would breathe the same air, not the air in the air, but the air internally. And I'm talking about this because in Qigong, when you do Qigong exercises and you combine air intake of oxygen with movement, you always come to a moment of truth. And that is the moment is between breathing in and breathing out. And when you lift your arm and you breathe in and you come to the top of the movement and the top of the breath, there has to be a change before you breathe out. Because if you don't breathe out, you finish, you stop. When you come to this moment of in-breath and out-breath, That is the moment where T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, at the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there is the dance. It's at the still point where the decision happens. It's at the still point where you continue. It's at the still point where you could go left or right. At the still point, is where the dance is. That is the room, the breath, the air that I'm trying to breathe with my artists. I'm trying to breathe with myself when I do the Qigong sequences. How I came to Qigong, was obviously my mother having done Tai Chi all her life, so it wasn't anything new. But in 1999, I was invited to create a show for the Shaolin monks in China. The Shaolin Temple invited me and my producer to make a show for them. So I wrote a show that incorporated the history of the Shaolin Temple, Presented this to the abbot of the temple, a very formal audience much more formal than I would have thought before I stepped into the room. All this beautiful regalia, they were all sitting there. There I was in my blue jacket and stepped in there with my script and translator who did simultaneous uh, translation of the show. The show was accepted. We went about and auditioned various skills to add to the show, to create a, a very clear link between. Their story, where they came from, originally from India to China, and the whole way of training and their absolute excellence in control of their time, their breath, their power. Absolutely stunning. And so that became a big influence in my work hence on. It is only last year during the lockdown that I came across the group leader at the time who had left the temple many years ago, shortly after we've rehearsed. He is now my personal master. There's a beautiful circle between 1999 and now. It is the breath, it is the moment in between that keeps me tight to the technique. Keeps me tied to my training at my age, to the idea of T.S. Eliot, the still point. That's where the dance is. The voice is music. Music has a symbol that is a fermate. And the fermate is a half a circle with a dot in the center on the bottom. And the fermate indicates the past, indicates the future, and indicates the still point in the center. And the voice, the voice starts with the start of the fermata. You have, as a person, as the artist who's playing, the opportunity to play as long, as short, as high, as low, as fast, as, as you deem right, and you bring this point to what was the future, to the now. That's how I see it. And the voice that I would remember listening through the cloud of smoke is as clear as a bell and as hazy as the smoke. The the clarity is what it did to me as a young boy living at home and being surrounded not only by musicians, but also by poets and by writers. And they came at regular intervals. And that was led more by my mother than my father who couldn't tolerate the smoke. He did like poetry, but not the smoke. (laughs) So he played the piano next door. One of these later eminent writers would recite their first pieces of work. So the combination of their voice and my father's music and the fermate, I have to go back here, way back here, in my parents' history, my mother's history, who comes from a family also of musicians, and in her case, doctors. The music side, my great-grandfather happened to have been a friend of Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, and they had a letter exchange about the symbol, the fermate. And so that was a symbol that was part of my consciousness in my upbringing, and the voice is there, which I can still hear. Does that answer any question
0: at all? (laughs) That's a wonderful, wonderful answer. The reason I ask that people who listen to this show, they they do creative work. Most people don't grow up in the environment you grew up in. Mm. They don't live in it. They are not steeped in it. They don't have a heritage, a legacy around it. And yet they have a sense they too would like to engage in some sort of process that allows them to feel what you felt coming out of the smoky room if you will amongst these people who had always thrown themselves into the work so i'm always curious when i have people on this show who have done this kind of work forever it's interesting to ask them now you how that voice works for them i believe That still point is a universal still point. I believe we are all able to hear the voice and then translate it, interpret it in whatever way we interpret it to apply to, to our lives. And so the answer you gave is the answer you gave came right out of your own experience. Now, I know that you do a lot of creative work. Now I've looked at your photographs, they're dynamic, they're engaging full of, of stillness and yet, throbbing all at the same time. And you do other creative work as well. So tell us about how all of this work that you've done throughout your life, how is it translating now?
1: Photography is something that has always been a side interest, it was never a main interest. When I stopped directing and choreographing, I started to trust myself to buy a camera and let the camera lead me to where it wanted to take me. The deciding factor was to let the camera find something that would make a picture. And so I was given as a present by a dear friend of mine a little photo box. And in that photo box, I create little stories. And I create the stories as much as I did working with dancers in a studio. A moment comes when I want to pick something up and put that into the little box. And I have no idea what comes next. But things come to me in order to go into the little box to create a picture. It doesn't cost anything other than trust in yourself to have this empty little box. And when you see something that attracts you at the moment, take it. Trust it that you're taking is the right thing to do and trust it to put that into that little box and build a picture with other things that suddenly create a link with what is already in the box. And that link builds up until the box has got a picture which you were not planning. You didn't make a shopping list. You didn't make a tick-off list. One, two, three, four, five, done, 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 full stop. Not at all. It becomes an organic part of your own inner thinking and vision. So trust yourself. That's what I can say. Trust yourself that you can pick something up and there's something in it that will develop into something that you can call your own painting that you can call your own meal, that you can call your own piece of music, that you can call yourself a manifestation of your trust in yourself.
0: Are there times in your life, in your work, when you don't trust yourself? And when that happens, how do you calibrate back to the trust?
1: Everybody stumbles and everybody runs into a wall and everybody knows what it feels like when you mess up. And when you mess up, The messing up is painful, it's embarrassing. Step back, look at the mess you made, move sideways, circumvent, and then go not back to where you made the mistake. Often, actually, mistakes are the best thing that can happen because mistakes are actually the real thing that happened. So trust your mistake.
0: (laughs) Can you think of a... A mistake you made that turned out to be a building block into work you were doing.
1: It's a, it's a lovely question. You make mistakes which are just stupid mistakes. You make mistakes when you choreograph on a person or the person who you're working with is making a mistake. is not what you thought you wanted. You just be relaxed enough if you want to carry on, pick up the pieces not try to glue them back together again, but have a look at this piece, the broken piece, and let that become the key to unlock yourself into a better now.
0: You're talking about how to take the broken pieces and apply them to a better artistic now. Do you think that same approach could be used in
1: personal relationships as well? A personal relationship is about as different as day and night in creating art, uh, creating an artistic piece or letting an artistic piece develop because you have trust in your actions. There is no consequence. In a personal relationship, everything has a consequence. If you are in a personal relationship, the trust is, of course, in the other person. There's two of you. It's always a conversation. I wouldn't call it art. I would call it a... Give and take and a conversation. Uh, mistakes in relationships, we all know them. They don't have the same consequences. You wouldn't say, i pick up a little piece of this broken relationship and find another person <laughs> and stick that into, into the relationship.
0: We're talking about trusting ourselves to make art, trusting ourselves to be in a relationship. When you start to trust yourself more, do you think you become more honest with yourself? like the still point would be honest. You come to a, there's a truth in that rhythm when one's breath comes in, stops and goes back out. What is your relationship with honesty, truth and art?
1: The honesty, it comes to you for no other gain than doing something that you have to do. Not because it makes gold, not because it makes a fortune, but to make it as something that stands on its own. And if you happen to be very good at what you're doing, as well as being in a channel of communication that speaks to other people, that is the next step. And when you speak to other people, your work is done. A piece of work that you feel you feel right about, And if other people come to you and also feel right about it, that's a marriage of good feeling. If that marriage brings you gain, whether it's gold or silver, has nothing to do with the effect of a finished piece of work. It creates its own momentum. To ride on that momentum, of course, it's fun. If you're successful, of course, it's fun. Uh,
0: (laughs) Most people don't realize they can have that kind of fun on a very small scale. Do you feel like when you're waking up in the morning that you are just starting over or are you have you just rested on the long journey and you're still continuing on the journey? How does that translate for you? How fresh are you when you step into the work or into the morning?
1: I step into it fresh every morning that I would be trusting myself Stepping out of bed and not falling over. Trusting myself to step onto a road that leads me directly to where I want to go. I do trust my experience. I do trust my life. I trust how I can go forward. Depends on the dream. You know, it depends on the dream at night. And those dreams, they can guide you. Certainly your first step in the morning. I don't remember my dreams. Only very occasionally. When I do remember, they do linger and they do ask for an answer or raise questions which are not answered until I had my first cup of coffee, maybe.
0: Earlier, when we were talking, you referenced your 15 minutes of fame in the film that you made. And I was able to see a couple of clips of that film when I was getting ready to have this interview with you and one of the things I noticed about those clips you seem to be having an absolute ball of fun in those clips now I don't know if that's true or not but you were dressed in these great outfits and you were dropping the lines back and forth and it just seemed like something I would want to do so oh, well, were, were you having as much fun as as it looked like on the screen? And 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 fold a little bit of the ideas of how fun comes into the creative process.
1: Fun is to play. Playing, that's the fun part. You play, whether you play a role or whether you play in creating a painting or a piece of choreography. It's the fun of playing, the playfulness. I had the great opportunity to have masterclasses with Merce Cunningham and John Cage in my career. Both had this intuitive sense of fun and they just laughed. They just laughed and had the sense of playing, even though everything was absolutely serious stuff. But the serious stuff did not exclude the fun. When you see somebody juggling eight balls, that's not fun. It looks fun for the onlooker, but it's bloody hard work. And when you put those balls down, you say, made it. (laughs) Different kinds of fun in this metier.
0: So, what about the movie? What kind of fun did you have when you were making the movie?
1: The movie, well, first of all, being on a movie was very exciting. Getting up at five o'clock in the morning was not the part of fun, but the fun was to be in a makeup room and be transferred from a handsome prince into a wolf who was about to eat Red Riding Hood. The fun was working with the people. The fun was working with the director. The fun was the interaction with the other cast members. The fun was to let it out. The fun was having conversations with the the writer, Angela Carter, who was a superb writer and a superb mind, and to interact with the talent and then sit in the auditorium at the premiere of the film and be absolutely petrified totally petrified, because you can't change anything. You know, it's done. When you perform live, you're always still a little bit in control. But there you're not. You know, you have to relinquish all control. In a way, you do this on set as well. It was an absolutely wonderful experience, never to be missed, and always to relish in as a beautiful parcel of experience.
0: Do you ever watch the film now? To reflect back on the time, or is that just something that's part of the past and you've moved on?
1: It's definitely something of the past that I moved on. I did watch it occasionally. If there was the cast to come back and we'd have a cast meeting after 40 years and have a bash, then, yes, I would watch it. with great fun, you know, but it's the people, really. The film by itself because I know it well and it's done. Anybody who's working on it, that would be an occasion just to watch a few snippets.
0: In your photographs you sent me to look at, you have trees that have faces in them. Of course, the faces don't exist. You have a fantastic, terrific shot of a dog in Colombia. the center of the shot, but set off to the side, framed beautifully as one would frame a shot tells a fabulous story. And then you have one that stood out for me because I shot a photograph in Paris similar to what you shot. It's a narrow walkway in a city somewhere in the world. The woman is walking down the walkway or walking down this alley, going somewhere we don't know where. Maybe she's walked out of the four quartets that T.S. Eliot wrote. Maybe she's following the little bird down the path that he asked us to follow in that poem. Who knows? What was it about that shot that moved you to take that? And how does that sensibility register for you now, the woman walking away?
1: This is a woman very important in my life. We went to have a drink in a little bar. It's a very narrow passage in an old part of London. She was walking ahead in this tunnel of light and dark. It was a passionate moment in black and white. And black and white photography is very dear to me. I love taking black and white pictures. They contain an element, an emotional content. As a baby, when you're born, everything you see is in black and white. You don't see colour. The moment you open your eyes for the first time in your life, you see the world in black and white. And that emotional content of your life never goes away. And that's why black and white photography has this emotional content that sits in us. When we walked out of this bar, the white coat and the dark on either side And the white light above and a window light on the horizon of this alleyway told a very simple, emotional, strong story of going forward, just like a little baby would see things in black and white and walk forward into color.
0: I felt close to that stranger walking down the alley because I've walked down those alleys too, sometimes sad, sometimes happy.
1: The reason for our conversation this evening is actually in the picture. We have a good reason to like the picture.
0: And so as we're approaching the end of our time together, do you have anything you'd like to say before you go? Also, are you doing any projects you would like for us to know about? What's going on in the future?
1: At the moment, I'm working on a show that I've done several times already. It's called The War of the Worlds by Jeff Wayne, a big musical spectacle that we're performing in arena shows. But I'm working to brief there. It's dictated simply by the music, by the performance. It's a very spectacular piece of work. What I'm doing for the heart and for my mind and for my sanity is work on the photographs. And the only thing I can say to anybody who's watching, trust yourself because you can't do wrong. If you love working with people, you can't go wrong. You can make little piece of fun for an audience of two or three. You can't go wrong. Make sure that you embrace the whole thing with both arms and close to the heart.
0: Mika, thank you so much for taking the time out of your evening to be with us. I really appreciate it. It's Good to get to know you a little bit on the call here, and maybe later down the line, we'll have more opportunities to connect, or at least I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. So thank you very much.
1: It's been a great pleasure, uh, James, fantastic. Thank you so much. And I love talking to you and exploring myself.
0: And so there you go, my friends, a conversation with Mika Jay-Z, someone I've gotten to know better, and I hope you have too, in the course of our time together. Just before we closed our conversation, Mika mentioned he was working on a a new project, an extravagant project for arena stage shows titled The War of the Worlds by Jeff Wayne. I encourage you to go to YouTube and take a look at it. It's really something. There have been other versions of it. Mika noted, so the one he's working on, I imagine, is a revision of what he's worked on before. It's really quite something, so War of the Worlds by Jeff Wayne on YouTube. I think you'll enjoy it. When I first started doing this show about five years ago, interviewing people like I still do now, I worried about getting the interview, the conversation, all the way to the top of the hour. So I would push it sometimes. I would try to get people to continue to talk so I could fill the hour. I didn't have enough confidence when I first started out to add my own commentary after the interview was over. So I would just keep pushing, pushing, pushing. And it worked. It's fine. I got a lot of good conversations that lasted almost an hour. Then somewhere along the way, I realized... It's probably just as easy to do some filling in at the end of the conversation and take it up to the top of the hour. So I started to do that more and more and two things happened. One, I lightened up on the interviews and they end when they end. I'm perfectly happy with that. Second thing that happened gave me some opportunities, many actually to tell stories, to give commentary, to talk like I'm talking now, to add things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to add. So today, inspired by Mika's devotion to his art, I would like to bring a musical poetry component into the rest of the time that we have together. If you've been listening to this show, you know I often will thank Walter Parks for our theme song. The reason I have The theme song from Walter, plus other pieces of music that Walter's written over the years, is because Walter and I have been friends for a long, long time. And a few years ago, been a while now, I think, maybe even a decade, Walter and I decided to do a recording collaboration, my poetry, his music. And what made our collaboration a bit different than what you might do today if you were recording your music or your spoken word piece or whatever it is you're recording, or even as I'm recording this show, how I'm approaching it. I'm approaching it with my computer, I have a program, I have a microphone, I record into it, and I edit it as I go. And of course, a decade ago, we had all the tools to do that. Walter, however, wanted to do it from the analog tape point of view one take, get it done, edit it, and that's that. So instead of editing as we went along, we would do one take, and if it didn't work, we would do another take, and another, and another, until we got it right. We recorded these pieces in different locations around the New York area. Walter had a studio in Patterson, New Jersey, so we recorded two or three of them there. And then we went to 23rd Street, a block down west of the Chelsea Hotel, and we recorded some there. Occasionally you can hear uh, street noises in the background because we had the windows open. I think it was summertime. And then we finished it all out in Jersey City. It took us a couple of years of coming in and out of this to actually get the whole thing done, but we ended up with four or five pieces, maybe a few more, Of course, when I listen to them today, I'm not as satisfied as I'd like to be. But when you're making art, as Mika mentioned in his conversation about the way he lives his life, you have to do it until you don't do it, and then you just have to let it go. So I was thinking, why not take a little of this time to offer you some of those pieces that Walter and I worked on way back when. So I would like to start with one called The Ghost of Sam Cook." There's a place, or there once was a place in New York on on, tw- on 12th Avenue between 2nd and 3rd on the east side called Angelica Kitchen. I went there all the time, and when I was walking down the street to go to Angelica Kitchen, I'd often imagine someone was on the corner singing. And I don't know, maybe I never imagined Sam Cooke was on the corner singing, but I did write a little poem about it and Walter put it to music. So without any further ado, here's the first little bit that Walter and I did called The Ghost of Sam Cooke. down 12th. Hungry for tofu at Angelica Kitchen, Marcia sees the ghost of Sam Cooke, dressed in a tuxedo. His mouth is on the microphone singing, darling, you send me. She slips out of her jeans into something sheer. Sam's oohs and ahs win her note by note in the seamless sound of the Miami Sea. But this is January. The village. She wants to be 40 and finished with boyfriends who don't know how to tell her, honey, there ain't nothing can ever change this love I have for you. Not that she can't take care of herself when she opens Angelica's door. The hostess with a gold lip ring points to a table for one by the window. And that was the ghost of Sam Cook. You know, whenever I was in New York, and I lived there a lot, and I would also come and go a whole lot, whenever I arrived in New York, I always would go to Angelica Kitchen and sit there in the corner table, and somebody at the at the door would greet me and take me to the table and put the menu down. And I would read the New York Times and often meet people all the time there. So it was a wonderful place. So when I imagined Marsha walking down the street, I just somehow couldn't take her anywhere else but Angelica Kitchen. Unfortunately, it's closed now. Leslie McCarron, wonderful Leslie McCarron, who ran it for years and years and years, over 25, 30 years had to close it and move on. Of course, we all close and move on in life. That's just the way things go. I believe Walter and I shared a few meals at Angelica Kitchen while we were making our poetry album. And one of the conversations we had, he said, you come from North Carolina, Nave. You you could do something about North Carolina. What was it like when you were growing up? Let's Let's do one about North Carolina. Do you have anything? And I did have one about growing up and the things that I did, like catching worms. And I remember one time I went to the state fair, which is really basically a grifter operation designed to to take money from kids like me who had a part-time job and didn't know any better. So off I went to the state fair. So I had put a little piece together about that kind of life back in the 50s and the 60s. And so Walt said, let's do that. Let's do something about the state fair. So I pulled the poem out and we noodled around and came up with something on the banjo, really. So shifting from New York and Angelica Kitchen, where Walt and I shared a meal, as I said, growing up in western North Carolina on mountain roads. So here you go.
2: I grew up on mountain roads that bent like the old men who played golf on Saturday afternoons at the municipal course. After dark, I'd scan the fairways with my flashlight for night crawlers that wiggled like tiny sunburned snakes between the 8th and the 9th greens. I'd sell them for a nickel to the old men at the fishing docks who cast for bass. Sundays, my daddy drove the Chevy all the way down the old saluda grade to Greenville, while Glenn Miller's In the Mood played on the radio. I'd fan my arms in the sun. At 16, between the squeals of kids on the Ferris wheel, I lost a week's pay, believing I could throw a baseball into a milk jug three times in a row. Big-bellied barkers cleaned out wallets. Bacon and eggs over easy cost a buck ninety-five at the silver dollar. Everybody thought coal train came from Kentucky, and honeysuckle along the road just outside the city limits rustled in August heat to the law of accumulation on its side.
0: When I listen to that piece, I go quickly back to when I was growing up, and I'm a part of all that I've met, and I'm just as much of a part of the earthworms at the golf course in the silver dollar cafe and going to the state fair and all the rest of it so walter was also curious when we were making this little album we called it curious if i had any anything odd that we might be able to throw in and i told him that once in portland oregon when i was living there I'd been sitting in a cafe having breakfast, reading the Oregonian, which is the local newspaper there. And I came across an article about a character in in Cairo who had died of a heart attack while he was driving around in his taxi. And he had been taken to the morgue, and in the morgue something happened, and I told Walt what had happened. And he said, oh, that'll be a great one. Let's let's give that a try. So now what I'd like to do is offer you this little piece, and you'll be able to find out what actually happened to this character in the morgue. I named him Bowdwee because I couldn't remember the name of the original guy in the article. So here's this little story about a, a guy who has a heart attack while he's driving his taxi. It's called Baldway. Here you go. Cigars, gulping Turkish coffee, aorta exploding in the middle of the intersection. The ambulance will rush me to the emergency room. The doctor will check my pulse and say he's dead. They'll strap me on a gurney, wheel me to the morgue, but like Baldwi, I'll not be dead. Later, will jab me in the ribs. I'll not tolerate it. Like Bowdwy, I will rise up, eyes wide, teeth gleaming, howling, bellowing. The paramedic will fling his flashlight across the room, scream in shock, and die. The next day headlines will declare. Corpse rises from the dead. Paramedic takes his place. You know, one thing I liked about working with Walter was his ability to just morph any way he pleased, back and forth from the the ethereal Bowdwy story to walking along the golf course or the State Fair, or the more urban sounds of Angelica Kitchen and Sam Cook standing on the corner in the East Village. I told Walt about a story I had written which was inspired by one of James Lee Burke's crime novels read by Frank Muller, who sadly left this world too soon. Frank Muller was one of the best audiobook readers I'd ever heard. So I made a run at writing something in the voice of James Lee Burke and Frank Muller combined, and here it is. It's titled, Candler. Candler used to be a preacher's wife down in Alabama. Her husband, the Reverend Doyle Summerhill, could preach up a storm. Yea, though I walked through the valley, he'd say, Alabama was farm country. And when Candler was growing up as far as she could see, trees held so much summer that even the bees got tired by August. It must have been during one of those long fly buzzing nights when the heat had settled across the spine of the meadow that Candler decided that rotary fans, weekly newspapers, lousy hairdos at the beauty parlor, and devil-driven servants were gonna be markers in a book somebody else read. Nobody really knows what it was that made Candler restless. Some of the old folks say that if you live too close to the tracks and you hear the trains blow, it won't be long before your kitchen starts to look like a diner that charges more for coffee than you're willing to pay. It might have been the hailstorm, the one that tore up half the tobacco in Coleman County and left Candler wide awake with her knees pulled up to her chest. Most of the boys down at the Creek View Cafe still talk about that storm. Ace Rivers claims that was the night his boy Shelby joined the Merchant Marines. Patrick Moss swears he heard his mama's ghost dancing on the tin roof, just like they said she did when she was young and used to sneak off to the jazz clubs down in Birmingham. It drove her daddy crazy until he gave in to the idea and decided his daughter was better off in Birmingham than New York. About that same time, she showed back up on his doorstep with a husband in one hand and a Bible in the other. Folks around that part of the country will tell you that hailstorm tore up a lot more than tobacco plants. Storms like that have a way of washing the biggest rats through a drain system. The kind of lightning and thunder that runs along behind those big chunks of ice has a way of lifting the skin right off the bone, hair and all. It shakes the topsoil loose. It makes the crops nervous. Some say that was the way it was between Doyle and Candle. He didn't treat her bad. He just didn't treat her. It not a whole lot different than having somebody give you a Hershey bar for your wedding anniversary and trying to tell you it's cake. Candler knew from the start she shouldn't have gotten married, but like so many other girls looking for respectability, she fell for Reverend Summerhill, who talked the napkins off her mama's table and told her the Lord had given him a vision and she was part of it. Restlessness is not something that comes over you like a new idea and gives you a clear view of the mountains. It just scratches and pecks. It's like one of those park pigeons that's used to being fed. For Candler, it was more like hair growing out. No matter how you cut it, it still takes a year to get down to your shoulders. And even after it's down there, you don't always notice it. On the afternoon, Doyle rubbed his right index finger over the middle shelf in front of the fresh-dried coffee mugs and said, Candler, God ain't never gonna tolerate this much dust even in hell. It was the afternoon Candler shoved her chair back across the floor went upstairs, opened the drawers, and started to pack. And there you go, my friends, the opening of what might one day be a novel about Candler and all of her adventures, after she leaves her husband and goes off and does whatever she does. A rather resourceful character, I have to say. And so I would now like to close out this with a piece that I wrote one time about wanting to live like Picasso. I just want to go on record as saying I love the idea of living in Paris and I love the idea of living like Picasso, not being Picasso. Picasso was an extraordinary artist. He was also really a pretty rough guy to be around. That said, the the sensibilities of Paris always have intrigued me. And same thing with Walter. Walter loves that city as well. So not that either one of us are Parisians. Lord knows we're Americana to the, to the core. Even so, uh, we both know how to appreciate that sensibility. So this is a piece I'd like to offer you now. It's pretty funky. Walter figured out a whole lot of great music. I don't say much in it. And I just do love to listen to it, and I hope you will, too. So he here it is, living like Picasso, Picasso, but not being Picasso, just living he like Picasso. He wants to live, he wants to
1: live, he wants to live like Picasso. Send it on down now, Lord. Likes
0: to those ladies in a nice light. Late January, I've walked through the Picasso Museum three times. I step out into early twilight on a Paris side street and stroll into raw skies, just like Picasso might have, till I settle in a cafe and drink an expensive glass of red wine. I've always wanted to live like Picasso. Give it some, Lord Jesus. I will copy my canvases in faded afternoons. I sit in this cafe hoping to live to 93. Mm-hmm. I began sketching faces of all the women I've loved. They've be beautiful, just like Picasso. I start with Terry, the piano player in my church. He was 18. I was 14. Every Sunday I sat in the third pew beside the glass. Is open in the summertime, I bet it was, and I listened as her fingers move note to note. This afternoon, as I sit in this cafe, huh? I am Picasso. I bet you are. start between those Sundays and her beautiful face. I draw on the white and paper. Her nose is getting better. Her wine is taking a breath or two. I I add shadows. And there you go. Lord, let him live like Picasso. Of course, upon reflection, now that we have COVID-19 upon us and the pandemic and all this rearrangement that we've done in our culture, maybe some of these fantasies of living like somebody else are, are fine, but maybe right now all I want to do is live like myself and I hope you want to live like yourself as well. And, I want to just thank you ever so much for listening to the poems and to Mika's commentary and being with me and being with Mika during this hour. It's something I appreciate very much. And on that note, I would just like to say you've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nabe. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Once again... Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. And also thank you, Walter Parks, for the other songs you offered this time. I really do appreciate your music. If any of you listening would like to know more, walterparks.com. That's a great place to look. Devine Dial, thanks for the good work you do at WPVM-FM. I appreciate it. If any of you would like to get in touch with me, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, jamesnave.com. You can email me through that website. I would love to hear from you. If you'd like to join me on Saturday mornings, 10 o'clock Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, I gather with a group of writers and we generate some written material based on the imaginative storm techniques. We call it the imaginative storm writing prompt of the week sessions. I do these sessions with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. So if you would like to join us, imaginativestorm.com. Thanks once again for tuning in to Twice 5 Miles Radio. My name is James Nave. Please do come back again sometime soon. And until then, I will catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.